It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. All right, welcome back. I am excited once again to be joined by my man, Michael Porcelli. Yo. And we're going to be continuing um, what's kind of become an ongoing discussion over these last couple of weeks and here on this podcast and really beyond it, honestly. And part of what we're going to start talking about today is Michael and I were just chatting about um, it's an intense moment. And we're actually having the meeting uh, of kind of two epidemics. There's the actual COVID-19 virus that's spreading across the world. And then there's this breakdown of, you know, what we might call the mind virus or misinformation and disinformation and the conflicting information that is happening and the breakdown of shared reality that we kind of talked about from a couple of weeks ago. And that both of these things feel like they're the end of the world in some ways. And they're incredibly intense. And the scale of them, I think, is something we could argue that's maybe never quite happened like this. But you had mentioned one thing that I I actually found quite heartening. And I want us to start there, which is that in some regards, this isn't new. Mm -hmm. Um, So just even in terms of the virus, we've had pandemics before globally, and sometimes um, with great loss. But Humanity has more or less survived. And then there was this really interesting thing that we've also had information pandemics like this before. And um, specifically, kind of when new information technologies are introduced, there tends to be this kind of spread, this moment of it not necessarily working right in culture. And I kind of wanted us to start there. And you had kind of mentioned, um, the printing press is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I can think back just my own personal anecdote here is I, I was in, in the nineties, I was studying computer science in university and I had ac- really early access to the internet, just like a command prompt on Unix. Uh, there was no web browsers at the time. And I just remember being kind of astounded at the possibility. It was like my mind could easily, link up where this was going to go. And I was like, oh, this is going to take over everything. And like, I generally am a very positive outlook personality optimist. And all I saw was like, all the ways this is going to be so great. We're going to be totally interconnected. We're going to be able to share information very rapidly. It's going to be totally peer to peer and decentralized. Although I'm not sure we were using those words at the time. And this was kind of really jazz jazzing me up. Right. Cause like at the same time, you know, here I am in my late teens, early twenties, all very skeptical and critical of the man, you know, like that phase, you know, the, um, as a young man that, uh, you know, many people experience or many, yeah, at that age and there, that hope and that, um, I still hold on to it now, although it's been definitely, tempered and uh one of the 
to the to your point on the printing press and this kind of historical precedent. This was an idea I got from historian Neil Ferguson, who um, recently did a three part PBS thing called Networld. He also wrote a book called The Square and the Tower, where he um, talks about history as this interplay between like centralized hierarchies and decentralized networks. And one of the parts of the book, he talks about how there were like widespread disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy rumor stuff happening, like in the wake of uh, the invention of the printing press. And some people actually see it as a causal factor in all the religious wars that ended up happening in Europe uh, at that time. Like it really was mm-hmm. this kind of break. To, if, if the, what the Catholic church was in Europe was this kind of thing that unified the people, even if the, the whatever the, the Kings or whatever the, the feudal Lords were in conflict with each other, there was still this kind of underlying religious or spiritual fabric of meaning that kept people together. Uh, But then, you know, that actually kind of broke down with the Protestant Reformation and the way that these different variations of theology sort of spread throughout Europe that basically got people fired up enough to start killing each other, you know, and other weird shit like there's witches and we got to go gather them up and get them. them. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's not new. Yeah. So it's in its, I think what's interesting about that is it's in its own way, a process that unfolds, right? Mm -hmm. A a technology hits and then it has some good effects and then it has some unintended consequences. And then um, we, the people, so to speak, we have to become literate right? We, we have to become literate in new technologies yeah. and media literacy is, is a version of that, you know? And, and so, yeah, printing press, right? It's amazing. Information can spread, but wrong information can also spread more easily than it ever has and farther than it ever has. Um, and people don't yet have the kind of um, literacy to start to feel into, okay, do I question this? Can it be wrong? Right. Can someone just print anything? And then over time, you know, I think we develop that capacity to some extent and same thing with all the the versions of right. Uh, media that have come since then, right. We have kind of yellow journalism yep. and what was it? The, the, um, Spanish war. Is that the one we, we basically just kind of made up Hearst uh, and his newspaper yeah. kind of fomented that. Yeah. Right. And that that's an example, I think, of we hadn't quite had the antibodies to to realize, oh, sometimes those things can be spun to an extent. Right. We can be manipulated by that media. There's the classic, um, you know, somewhat contested uh, in 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 history, but something about it speaks true that the the tale of it certainly still spreads of you know Orson Welles and the world of worlds yeah. right doing a broadcast over this new medium radio that people didn't necessarily have the full antibodies for and you know while it probably wasn't as widespread as we might like to believe some people if they tuned in at the wrong moment 
you know, had some kind of experience where, wow, is this really happening? How do I know it's not happening? Like yep. panic, right? Yep. The world's being attacked by aliens. Um, and so the, the internet, I think, and we're definitely seeing this, you know, need for deeper media literacy, as I would kind of call it happening right now. And it's interesting how this kind of, in a lot of ways, I think uses some of the same muscles as mindfulness and skills we're learning in other areas, but of like having to pause question, where did something come from question? What am I seeing? Um, and you know, the, the next tsunami, I think that we're getting ready for that certainly causes me the panic of no longer being able to inherently trust what you're seeing even or hearing to a, a deeper level than ever possible with deep fakes mm -hmm. that all, you know, this new stuff hit, we kind of built up some literacy about it. Okay. Here's, here's ways I can make meaning. And then boom, a new technology drops that our system doesn't quite yet know how to metabolize. And I think that's part of the breakdown here. And I think we're on the tail end of that to some extent of, you know, we were talking about how social media, when it first came out, well, the internet, when it first came out was awesome, right? Mm -hmm. It was exciting. It was connecting. It was actually a pretty friendly place. Yeah. Like, you know, I was, I was like on prodigy back in the days, early web chats, like people were kind of cool, right? Oh, it was man. like, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't like so much trolliness, at least in my experience back then, you know, there were some bad eggs, but it was actually like a pleasant place. Um, and then particularly, I think since social media sprang up, oh my God, we all get to be broadcasters. We all get to be journalists. We don't have to rely on the, the centralized media institution to tell us what's real and what's not. Um, and that was very exciting. And that has some amazing, amazing, um, pieces to it. You know, I, I certainly remember, I think it was the Boston bombing was one of the first like big events I experienced through social media, mm. um, at the, the marathon of like, mm -hmm tracking it and like seeing people's reports. And it was like a whole different way to experience it yeah. than anything I had experienced at the time. Um, and then now we're kind of getting to the other <laughs> side of it though, where it's like, Whoa, should everyone be a broadcaster? Like, you know, there's this kind of danger of how easily, how little friction there is in spreading information now where any information can spread almost instantaneously. Um, and that, you know, I think one of the challenges that I would argue does make this pandemic in the physical world and in the information world a little different is part of what's shifted in globalization is the removal of natural limits. Meaning mm. even with the printing press back in the day, it was kind of hard to get your book, you know, from Europe to Australia. Like it was, there was just a lot more involved right. in doing that back then and the speed at which that could happen. And same thing with the virus. There was a lot more geographical limits to how fast things could spread. So, you know, there was some, there was kind of some natural containers on how big things could get and how far they could go. Um, obviously Christianity being one of the exceptions to that and finding a way to kind of <laughs> get around. Uh, but like, that's all gone now. So, right. Someone, you know, <laughs> I joke, <laughs> I jokingly sent you a text the other day and I was, part of me was kind of like, I wonder if I should try this out and actually see, you know, 
how easy would it be to stoke of like kind of just making up this jokey thing about, you know, the, there's the people that believe there's reptile people amongst us and, you know, <laughs> yeah. they control the power. And I was like, oh, actually, I wonder, you know, maybe Bill Gates is a reptile person and he created the pandemic as an excuse to be able to give everyone a vaccine that's going to have reptile DNA in it. And it's going to be the downfall of mammals. <laughs> and I was like, actually, that'd be a pretty, we could probably actually get that out seed that <laughs> and then it would you know I, and it could actually probably go pretty f- far pretty fast in some frightening ways um but yeah that's just one can of worms right of this this new question we have of wow we kind of opened pandora's box and now how are we gonna you know make meaning of it and create some shared reality mm-hmm. in a way that um allows us to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, there's so much in what you've said. And I, I think that the analog of a pandemic or a mind virus, a metaphor is really apt. Um, you can, you know, if you actually look at the way cybersecurity works or has worked kind of like the, you know, the white hat hackers and the black hat hackers, and you know different kinds of exploits that are discovered when a new operating system is released or a new patch goes out like there's kind of this um tumultuous it's it is actually a little bit like a kind of um you, you know the way that we're kind of like if you understand microbiology there's we're just bathed in microbes like all the time some of them are living inside of us they're all over our skin they're all over all the surfaces around us it's like most of it's fairly benign because we kind of have like these default settings that mostly protect us from it most of the time. Right. But if you ever, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard the stories, like you can, if you put just, um, just a computer just on the raw internet, not behind a firewall, like it literally would just get just completely swarmed by like all kinds of attackers out there. Um, because the, the internet by default is actually sort of like just filled with a whole bunch of kind of like, drone armies of like worms and computer viruses that are just out there just seeing if they can kind of like hack into computers on that are available on the network, wherever the network is. It's crazy, but it's very much like that, like and and mm-hmm. uh, this way that you could look at the, the way the immune system evolved biologically over millennia, but also the way that the immune system itself kind of develops in the lifetime of one person kind of developing an antibody response to a new infection and then you get immunity like we have this idea of like you know it's yeah. kind of part of the discussion now with covid but like this kind of thing is exactly what happens in cybersecurity, right like a new exploit comes out and then there's a new solution to the exploit that gets just installed on everything and there's like a you could think about it like an evolutionary arms race very much like a biological one like predator versus prey and these kind of innovations that kind of like ratchet up or ratchet off in some particular kind of direction and i think there was i think was fascinating this happened probably in the last 10 years or so especially when the social media algorithms really got good at getting people kind of glued to their screens like I remember the there was sort of like that nice interim period of when Web 2.0 we had like the idea of the read write web and and blogs and people can like and wikis and people are not just consuming the internet sort of like that kind of previous stage where we were on mm-hmm. the receiving end 
AOL and Prodigy or whatever. We were, but now it was like, oh, we're kind of like publishing, you know, we're uploading to YouTube or we're, you know, going on our live journal or whatever it was, you know, and yeah, it was, and everything was like on an RSS feed. So I, I mean, I was going to, I had to pick and choose what I wanted to see. Uh, but then like Google and especially Facebook and Twitter to a lesser degree, but they got really good at just like delivering up the stuff that was just going to keep us like maximize time on screen because the attention economy, mm -hmm. these algorithms just got really good at doing that. That kind of created, you might say like an infection vector, right? Like a, that, um, is, it's not a cybersecurity attack, like an operating system level exploit. It's actually an information, whatever you want to call it. Information security, I think, is basically what you went mm -hmm. medic security exploits, where the, the exploit is not uh, in the computer system so much as it is in our minds, but it's delivered totally. to us through the vehicle of the computer system. And like this is, there are moments where I sit back and say, like, wow, this is really kind of terrifying. Like when you, especially when you read about, um, I can't remember her last name, I sent you that video with Renee. What's her name? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll post it in the show notes. It's it's D something. Yeah. Um, Renee something. But yeah. yeah, that was one of the most illuminating things I've heard and watched. Totally. And like they've they've actually kind of verified these uh, with, the, with the Internet Research Agency and that building in, in Russia did where they mm -hmm. kind of like created these groups that were for very similar to kind of like a native socially activistic groups, but sort of slightly more radicalized. And it was like, oh, cool. We're going to get this group of people all fired up on one side of a political issue. And this other group of people fired up on the other side of it. And then we'll create these real world protest events and we'll schedule them for the same time and like right across the street from each other. And so that they're just going to like hate each other. And like, who did that? Did they, you know, it's easy for each one like any given member of that group to totally blame and judge the other Americans on the other oh, side man. of the street. But it actually was injected through mis deliberate misinformation. Just like, it's almost like a video game to the, you know, whatever these like Russian kids like in uh <laughs> whatever they're doing or whoever's paying their, you know, paychecks or something like that to kind of just like, kind of to troll or just jack with the public right because and so our, our discontent and yeah 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 and confusion um right yeah i i think what's great about that as an example well it's not great it's horrifying is you know i think part of what we're dealing with and definitely in the information world right now is that we are being hacked yes so meaning right the, our human mind and physiology has like an operating system to some extent that part of what's unfolded over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years is as we understand more about how it works, mm -hmm. we can optimize to it in some unnatural ways. You know, um, can't remember the, the guy who wrote the book, um, or had the concept of like the super, supernormal stimuli. Oh, yeah. Uh, you might. Yeah, I don't know. Right? Like mm -hmm. just this idea um, that there's there's certain things our neurobiology is defenseless against because 
back in the organic natural world, like I was saying, there were some natural limits, right? So um, sugar, as an example, in the natural world um, is actually a pretty rare seasonal short-lived thing. So in that time, you can gorge like, oh my God, okay, I'll eat as much as I can because it's actually not probably going to be there in a couple of weeks, right? right? And it might not come again for a year. And it's in an unrefined form, like fruit off a tree, not like, you know, totally sugar and granulated. So our system, you know, isn't set up to be constantly uh, digesting that in some way, actually, it really, really harms us in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's a, I'll try to find it. There was just fucking amazing New York times article, maybe five to six years ago about the, um, chemists that work for like Doritos. Oh, food science. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The food scientists that sit there and figure out the equation between sweet and salty Mm -hmm. in like an arms race, just split testing over and over and over, keep upping the ante. Okay. I'll make it a little sweeter. And then, oh, if it's too sweet, our body will eventually kind of get a signal to shut it down. You're full. But if we add more salt, then that counteracts that. And they just keep ramping it up to this point where, you know, some of these like processed foods, like we actually don't have a defense. (laughs) You know, I I've dealt with this, um, in, in a lot, a lot of ways. And, you know, in a lot of the men's work I do too. And, you know, for a a lot of men in the world, like porn's another version of that, just like an endless stream of, of stimuli that our body is totally wired to react to, but that would have been almost impossible unless you were Genghis Khan, right. To get that level of it back in the day. Um, and so this is already happening, right. In in some regards. And then now our neurobiology, like how we make meaning is, is being hacked. You know, I, I, I don't remember if we talked about it, but the most horrifying thing I I heard was in, um, the podcast from the center for humane technology and trust where they were right. They give the, he gives this just chilling example of, okay, so they already have this thing where you can make deep fakes. Yeah. Right. You can, you can, you can generate faces from algorithms that are made from other faces. Mm -hmm. And and that's how a lot of these trolls and bots are creating like Twitter accounts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But now you can kind of tie that in with the human psychology hacking, right? Which people do already to get passwords and things like that. I can't remember exactly the phrase for that, but okay. What if I go on Michael's Facebook feed and I pull 40 photos of his friends and I generate a deep fake based on those 40. So it's something new, but deep in your neurobiology, you can, you kind of notice, you know, my eyeline and someone's someone's smile. And then I send you a text and a photo of you and me, this fake person. And we're like, Hey man, do you remember we met at that party? And, uh, we said we'd connect and you're like, ah, I don't honestly, but you get that vague. This feels familiar though. Right. Mm-hmm. There's something about this face. We don't forget faces mm-hmm. and then boom, you're hacked, right? Like someone has kind of found a way in to some trust for you. And, you know, this one I've always been, um, and then and I'll kind of throw to you the, the idea of developing antibodies for that. Mm-hmm. Like I've actually been really worried about for a while of like, 
this has to be a massive education, like fast, somehow to prepare people for. You may see a politician speaking, and that's not them. Like we're there, right? Right. This stuff's kind of locked up in some boxes right now, but people can already generate sp- speaking heads from still images yep. that use audio bites. Like it, it's scary shit. Um, but I used to notice it because you know I, going back to computer nerd dumb, I was a total computer nerd, and I was like coming of age right when computer graphics were springing up in the early nineties. So I was obsessed. I watched movie magic all the time. I read all the magazines Mm -hmm. and I was constantly tracking, you know, state of the art computer graphics and special effects. And because of that, um, I spent a lot of time looking at special effects and what's real and what's not. So I tend to have pretty strong antibodies for noticing computer graphics and bad special effects still, right? I can watch a Marvel movie and it's like, you know, fake Tony Stark. And I'm like, Oh, right. The uncanny Valley just strikes. Mm -hmm. Um, but what freaked me out was starting to notice that for a lot of friends, they didn't notice, (laughs) they couldn't tell the difference between what was computer generated and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I was like, can't you tell like the highlights there and like the fuzz there and like, it's not real. And when I realized like, that's a capacity that a literacy that isn't, you know, necessarily built up like holy shit is that going to be able to be exploited and hacked in this in this way that i think you're speaking about that we are being hacked by these algorithms right now and you know i am being hacked i even have to acknowledge of like why i want to share certain things on the internet right like it ties into my identity and what i value and like people are figuring that shit out yep totally So I think there's plenty of what we're saying here that matches what we're hearing out there of the people kind of talking about similar kind of breakdowns. And we're 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 focused really emphasizing on the the social media aspect of this. Um, But I think there's also, you know, other other things that are maybe a little bit more more serious, I suppose, like, you know, ways that some of these types of incentives have corrupted scientific research, which is emerging in the form of the replication crisis and some of the ways that like even not just the, the kind of like humanities, postmodern, whatever journals, but also even in regular science, you know, social psychology and other, other places are finding themselves kind of, well, what how much of our research is actually reproducible here what's actually validated and how did this happen like where are the incentives kind of corrupted there and i think we should start to bridge into not just talking about the problem because i think there's plenty of good analysis of the problem but start talking about like well what what does what can we do like what what uh solutions might we have in the coming years because we're going to need them because otherwise we'll revert so let's just kind of paint where this goes if this doesn't (laughs) get solved right well we have this kind of um historical narrative right of like you know these the whole globe has now been mapped out right like all the all the cultures have essentially encountered all the other cultures in some form or another we have 
cosmopolitan cities in in nearly every nation and definitely every continent where people of like all cultures and races and backgrounds can be found rightly we have institutions like the united nations or we have all kinds of ways of you know learning foreign languages from the, our native language and you know this general sense of like oh we've arrived at some globalized culture of some kind it, you know it's definitely there's plenty of room for variation but this idea that like oh we're there's peace for the most part we don't have like great power wars anymore right we have free and open trade and there's ways that you know there, there's mutual benefit that's happening we can definitely talk about the ways that globalization and the the capitalist system itself has its own kind of corrupting effect and actually i think there's a direct relationship in the information sphere mm -hmm. economic sphere that we're going to probably end up talking about a little bit when we get to the solutions but let's just say this kind of narrative that just on the whole it's like a you know steven pinker's enlightenment now book or, or some um hans rosling came up with something called um oh man can't remember his his factfulness you know kind of a similar story of like while wow, conditions over the past few hundred years have just been like accelerating and improving for most people. And, uh, and the, the population has been growing, but like the, you know, the energy usage per capita has been going down and there's all these ways we can like tell this really good story about how we're becoming more of a, of a global civilization and we're learning better mm -hmm. how to have peace and, you know, um, there's even like ideas of like, you know, has war in the way that we used to know it basically now come to an end. Maybe it has. However, the part of the risk of this thing going unsolved is regression, right? Like what, you know, the, if ancient peoples, you know, bumped into each other, you know, they were kind of like, well, our is the right one and your god is dumb right like <laughs> correct language and you you talk gibberish right our traditions are sacrosanct and you over there are heathens or whatever right and people shed blood for that type of thing right so but we already have that historical example of like how europe kind of turned into mass civil conflict the religious during the period of the religious wars yeah when there is a breakdown in a shared sense of what is true or in a shared sense of values then like the social conflict comes back and i think some people kind of especially in this time of covid that we're living in right, people sort of are kind of peering over the precipice and like oh we're not that far from the ledge right like if this level of shared understanding about what's happening and meaning like does totally break down people might actually bust out their guns and start shooting each other on the streets like how far away is that and i like to think we're not terribly close to it now but it certainly feels closer for a lot of people than it ever has maybe in their entire lifetimes where they're kind of like maybe this is what it was like to live through something like mm -hmm. world war one or world war two era or the great depression or something like this we're like everyday kind of security and comfort uh survival 
basic needs, you know, were, you know, you know, the, the world's poor lives in that way perpetually, but, you know, there's a lot of people who have like lived their entire lifetimes, not, you know, the privileges that they have in their, whatever kind of class strata they're in, right. They'd never really yeah. deal with it. And now some people are kind of like, am I going to have to deal with that? Like my job has been taken away. I might get evicted. I can't pay my bills. Do I use food stamps? I mean, there's people that I know that are kind of like in this kind of inquiry. Should I buy a gun? Should I move somewhere else? Should I go to another state? Should I like, what are these kind of questions? So the idea that if we don't solve something as a collective group of humans living on this planet for shared reality, let's just say, we will probably regress. Like things will fragment back until into kind of what they were before whatever you want to call this modernism period that we've been in for a few hundred years. It might go yeah. backwards. Way back. Suck. Right. Like that would really suck. So we have to solve it in a way that doesn't the transcends, I suppose, these kind of like, like, what are you going to call these epistemic islands of like, whatever this is, thinking or flat earth, whatever, conspiracy, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, everyone is kind of like, oh, yes, like, it's sort of trippy to watch it actually happen as a result of kind of these algorithms that are really just optimizing for attention in a sort of really kind of inhuman, almost value neutral way. Um, basically like an economic efficiency. And then the way that those are being exploited by bad actors, like, you know, trolls, people on the, on the chans or Russian kids, at the IRA or Chinese, you know, information warfare. I mean, there are some people that I've talked to who like, for them, it actually, they, they wonder if we are already in the middle of a global information world war, right? That there's actually like government actors that are attacking the populaces of other countries directly through these kinds of brain exploits. Like we can just inject uh, internal civil unrest into other cultures on purpose to destabilize them. And I'm just like, that is a plausible hypothesis to me that we're we're kind of in a we could actually be already in a world war with like china russia and the u.s or something like that that's already been going on for a few i think a hundred percent we are yeah <laughs> you mean, think we right the oh, totally i mean the the changing information coming out of china for one you know how oh yeah and then our changing story about we were getting like there's all kinds of weird stuff happening about who's trying to control the narrative of when this thing started, who had the, in the information COVID. and you know, whose fault is it? Yeah. COVID for sure. That I, I think, you know, when we'll know the, the final answers to some of these things, I, I don't know. Um, it's going to be hard to know, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it is already happening. Like mm-hmm. I, I just think it's one of those things where the, you know, we're already in the aftershock mm-hmm. and, and there's a certain um, <laughs> panic about that in my mind of like, oh wait, it's kind of already happened. So how do we begin to 
you know, slow that down or create a little pause to re regroup and create some strategies moving forward on that. You know, I think one of the things I heard you speaking to that I really do feel like is true is that, you know, in times of crisis, just very naturally, we kind of protect and retract, right? It's kind of Mm -hmm. just physically even, right? Like cover my body and pull back. And I I think um, developmentally in terms of consciousness and structures of culture, we do that too, right? So there's like a, there's a back, right? Yeah, It's going to be kind of a a back away from globalism. Um, And then we're seeing that into some nationalism. And then we're seeing that into tribalism, like locality, even more than that. And I think that is happening. And, you know, we're seeing that play out here in the US, like majorly where now this idea of, you know, social distancing is based on your worldview. Like mm-hmm. we're seeing it play out. You know, Trump was stoking the fires today of hmm. uh, liberate Wisconsin, you know, and trying to <laughs> anyway. sow confusion within his own country, um, <laughs> which is kind of horrifying. Um, but this thing is, you know, it's, it's, it's already, I feel like happening where there is this kind of retraction and what, you know, what's kind of scary about it, I think is what's different from when that's happened sometimes in the past is this kind of regression in consciousness, so to speak, you know, however I label it still now has access to the global tools though, which is part of the confusion as well, which they didn't right. Mm-hmm. Where there is a way to spread things globally in a way and stoke these fires across borders. And that, you know, I, I do think this is probably the moment where um, war has just, you know, in my mind, it just seems so absurd. Now we've spent like so much money building these giant ships that like sit around so that at some point we might line our giant ships up against someone else's giant ships. And then they're going to like shoot each other. And it's like, that's not fucking happening anymore. I mean, I just, (laughs) maybe some small scale skirmishes, but in general, like this is more it. Like why even build a giant ship when you can just seed some ideas and create some disharmony in a culture and then it stops, (laughs) right? Like, yeah. And then you just come in and your economy takes advantage of that or, or something in in some regard. Um, So, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like we, we are in that war to some extent. And I do think, you know, there's nothing that guarantees we don't have a regression. Like right. there's, there's just nothing in this moment that, that says that's inevitable. And I'm going to fucking optimist with these yeah, things. Maybe. Right. I mean, if the scope of time is big enough, yeah, we'll recover and we'll come back. But right. I don't want to live through a dark ages. This is my only shot in this body mind. Like, right. I want it to work this time because I'm here right now. Um, And so the need to find some tools and strategies for, okay, yeah, how do we start to create some way to make sense of the world, which, you know, is a big conversation that's up on the web right now. And how do we learn to process information and how, you know, one thing I certainly think that's part of this dialogue is, you know, how do we define truth and agree on that when truth itself is something that's evolving in consciousness and right. Science evolves, right. It's an outdated thing to think, Oh, once science figures it out, that's the answer forever. It's like, no, actually we have new access to information now. And that information sometimes retroactively changes things we understood. 
doesn't mean science is fake. It just means it's gotten more true, yep. <laughs> I would argue. More accurate. And, yep. you know, even being open to that as a culture feels like something that's just not possible right now. Like right now, it's like, oh, the scientist's prediction wasn't exactly right. So you can't trust any of the predictions, right? Like that's just one of the things I feel like I'm seeing a lot online. So it's like, what's the point? It's like, well, they're still probably more right <laughs> than the other people, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but so what, what's your take? I mean, where do you think we go? Well, I think there's a, a bit of a fork in the road here. And these things are interconnected. One is the side of the individual. Like what can an individual do to develop themselves? And then maybe even broadly, there's like the individual within the system of like, how can we educate people or like develop the kind of internal sort of antibodies in, you know, on a person by person basis. And I think that that's an important ingredient. Um, but you know, the, the critique of that approach is kind of like, well, an individual person is in their own, whatever inner resourcefulness is no match for, you know, the weapons of math destruction and the algorithmic optimization and surveillance capitalism and AI systems that are like, know you better than you know yourself. And I think there is some truth to that. Like, and, and we can come to the individual stuff, but I actually kind of want to focus on the systemic stuff. And that's the other side of the, yeah. this fork in the road is like, how can we upgrade the system? Cause, cause we have to have that ingredient also. And, you know, I think, uh, um, Yuval Noel Harari talks about in his, uh, Homodias book, his kind of future looking one that, like what's going to happen is the system will in some sense know us better than we know ourselves, right? It will be able to kind of anticipate our, so maybe even like the idea of, uh, of, of being free agents as individuals sort of starts to dissolve or something. And we maybe even start. I mean, maybe a hundred years from now, we sort of appear to be more like members of a Borg, right? Than we <laughs> would like to think we might ever be. <laughs> I mean, and that, that kind of sounds a little bit scary. It sounds like invasion of privacy. It sounds like all the horrible things about 1984 and brave new world and kind of dystopian futures and black mirror kind of shit. So yeah, I, I don't want, um, I don't want to just keep focusing on the dystopian stuff. And it's kind of hard because my, I mean, our minds is kind of like uh, negativity bias. Like look at all these ways this could go wrong, but let's see if we can talk about systemic stuff that I think could be helpful or improve this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a lot of these things in isolation, I think are sort of just, okay, well, incremental and you can maybe think about how they can be exploited but I want to kind of build up a, maybe a, a multi-pronged kind of multi-ingredient strategy here. And I want to see what you think of it. Um, yeah. before, before I even get into that, I just want to say there isn't, uh, I don't have like the solution, right? Like this is part of the issue is like, I don't think there is, we can sit down and like design from the point of view we're in now, the kind of ultimate, whatever you want to call it, unexploitable system. Um, like engineers, especially security engineers know this, that's actually kind of impossible, right? This idea that we're going to finally like stamp out every security hole in the system forever. No, no, no. It's our job to keep like closing the security holes that keep getting created by the shifting evolutionary landscape, right? It's like, 
totally. just how evolution actually works biologically or otherwise. So um, there's no way we can determine ahead of time, right? But there are some themes that I kind of want to offer here. So um, one is just information transparency. And, uh, you know, I think this is, this is actually like a long continue. If you look at like, well, the only people who could read or, or even have access to books, which were like handwritten things in the medieval period were very wealthy people. Then the printing press made access to everybody. And then more people got literate and now more people can read it. And like, and now we're kind of like at the, ex, the extended version of that. And like, you could almost say like the open, this is part of the problem, the kind of the open transparency of, of everything is part of the problem. But I actually think maybe part of the solution here is like even more transparency right? Like what's the inner workings of things? Like, so there's certain things that are kind of black box to us. For example, uh, the, the contents of the Facebook newsfeed algorithm, like what is that totally AI doing? Well, there's a couple of issues with that. Like one is like, that's kind of proprietary to Facebook as a corporation, what the, what the setup is for that deep learning algorithm or whatever style of AI they're using. But the other weird thing is, there's a whole category of AI solutions, which are themselves black boxes, even to the people who create them. Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. In the AI field called the explainable AI, where like, we should be able to like, talk to the AI and have it tell us what it's doing, right? Because it's even obscure to the people that create. So we're actually kind of in a weird two levels removed from anything that's transparent to us. This is not necessarily the only solution, but like transparent AI is having one aspect of the broader kind of transparency paradigm i mean you, if you look at the the journal issue like this whole kind of way that peer review has been corrupted in the scientific research process it's sort of weird like why are we why do we need the peer review to happen before the publication why don't we just do the peer review like why don't we just and that's kind of happening now there's a thing called preprint servers or pre-publication servers mm. Um, open science is sort of like this. And actually a lot of researchers are kind of like this too. They're like, I, I don't want to pass through this gateway. I mean, it's kind of a cabal, though those rich, you know, academics from these, you know, R1 level institutions who like, they actually have incentives, which are political, you know, or ego based, not like truth focused. And cool. I'll, I'll upload my paper. Like I'll submit it to the journal, but I'll just upload my paper to this thing, right? And actually, right now in the in in the time of COVID, we're having this entire like renaissance, so to speak, of like open access science and like the, the amount of like cross pollination and just rapid distribution of data sets and papers like across the virologists and the epidemiologists and the and the clinicians and in the healthcare system are just like it's yeah pretty cool. So like this, like oh, we can just crank the the transparency and the availability up even further. So that this kind of like these places that are sort of obscurant become a little bit more transparent to us. So I think that's, uh, there's other places where there appear, I'm just going to keep going with this transparency piece and examples like, um, open source software. That's another one, right? That kind of was started in the nineties. And in a lot of ways, most of what the internet runs on is open source software. And the idea here is it can become more reliable and more secure. The more brains can like access the internals of it mm -hmm. and like update it and, you know, notice its flaws or its bugs or whatever. Like it's, it's like all bugs become shallow. That's kind of when they, the more eyeballs that you have, like you can, figure this stuff out more quickly. So that's another place where the transparency shows up other places. Um, even in, um, 
the way that finances are done in corporations. There's uh, a whole movement called open accounting. Um, there's a Richard Semler in his company Semco in South America. His, his whole con company is like set your own um, salary, set your own salary. And it's like, how can you possibly do that? And it's like, well, <laughs> make everything transparent, right? Here's the PL for the company. Here's what everybody else is paying themselves. Now make a decision as to what you're gonna you what you choose to pay yourself is going to be totally publicly transparent to everybody else in this company. And so it's kind of like, oh, I'm self-policing because the yeah. like, if you kind of tilt the transparency really far, you kind of get these interesting um self-regulating behaviors. Uh, open book management is another one where it's like, well, just make educate everyone on basic accounting and how to do a PL for whatever they're doing. And so then everyone has a turn to like run the PL presentation month to month. Everyone sort of rotates through that position rather than it just being something that the, you know, the accountants and the and the manager <laughs> does. Right. Like so there's there's a whole way of doing this. And if if you really take it to an extreme, the idea would be we need to have some kind of chain of custody for any newly generated information artifact. And this is going to kind of get to um, how to deal with like deep fakes, right? Like, yep. so, you know, I can, you can take a camera, like in some of the stuff gets watermarked directly into the file. So you imagine yep. if whatever the, whatever it is, this camera, this instrument, every device that every device manufacturer makes puts a secure cryptographic signature onto the, file that it creates but you could take that even further and if you look at what uh, what what the underlying technology of bitcoin is is this blockchain and the more general term for that is a distributed ledger technology which is an mm -hmm. indelible write once database right it's like the shared database across and no one can capture it it's universally shared across the whole globe and once it once an entry goes in it's like written in stone and it can't be taken out so now imagine every device has when it generates a thing it gets like a universally unique identification number where that mm -hmm. signed thing is like locked into a particular time date stamped record this camera took this image and it has not been altered and it's stored here totally in a in a database that is common to the whole world we're talking about like this is a giant information technology system which has not been totally built yet but the ingredients <laughs> for the system are built so then you're like well how do we do our emerging how do we deal with deepfakes well you can just chain of custody like well where did that file come from like yep. which which software edited it where did it get uploaded and written like when every time you hit I mean, this would be kind of weird imagine every time you hit save on your photoshop Boom, Jason, yeah. his computer saved this file. Boom, and like the whole world can see that, right? Like that's kind of crazy. But like, if you want to, if what we're talking about is like, what is the immune system or the antibodies to this world filled with hyper virulent, supernormal, deep fake stimuli? You need to have some kind of secure chain of custody that is much, much harder to fake. Like, so you should be able to yeah. look at anything that comes across your feed, whatever feed you're looking at and say, where did that come from? And then if you wanted to, you don't probably won't most of the time, but if you wanted to, 
you could follow its edit history, go find all the way back to all the sources and where they actually originated in the, in the physical world, because there's always going to be some, this is where internet of things kind of comes in. There's always going to be some point of contact between the, the digital realm, we call this like the, the representational information world, the cyber world and the physical world where mm -hmm. like, the instrument measured a thing. Right. You could even, if you want to talk about how to make science really improve, imagine all those little things in all the science labs, like little microscopes and like you flip those things on and it goes, Hey, giant database in the sky. I have been turned on at this time yeah. by this person. And then you're like, cool. Let me take a little snapshot through my microscope. Guess what? This is all just being written like in this stone record. And what's cool there is that actually creates higher quality research. I mean, you have these researchers, totally. it's like I published a, when you see published a paper in 1999, you had like a graph and you had a table, right? And somebody goes like, cool, where's your source day? And you're like, oh fuck, that's in some Excel file on a PC that I don't have anymore. And it's like, where'd it go? Sorry, it's just gone forever. Right. But imagine if all science research was kind of like chain of custody all the way back to we measured this at this time and date. This particular data entry point was through this interview that this person did, right? Like where we turned on our mics and what we're doing right now is just being written into this. Jason and Michael Porcelli spoke on April 17th, 2020. <laughs> exactly what they said. And it has not been edited, right? Like, anyway, that's a lot, but this is kind of like my first take at like, a connection of a few technologies and principles, the principle of transparency, the principle of a right once database that's universally accessible, the principle of like internet of things and everything kind of latching into that database. This is one major solution family that I think has to be built. Otherwise we're screwed. What do you totally? And I, I know, I think it's so true. And I think people are working on it, which is good. I don't think I've seen the killer app yet, but I do think at least in terms of audio, video, imagery, certain captured data, that it's not like a, a this would be nice to have. It's now like a necessity to have. You know, I, I did see someone mentioning that, you know, something as simple as, um, you know, phones now have depth data. Yep. So a photo, you can, okay, does it have depth from that moment with it? Is, yep. you know, you could create a type of signature around that. That's much harder to fake if it's digitally manipulated or if it's a photo of a photo, right? you know, which can be something dangerous. Um, so, I, you know, I think people are starting to sort this out a little bit and that's encouraging. Um, you know, my, my alarm went off though, but it's like, how do we do that for ideas though? Right. Like mm -hmm. I just literally wrote something because that was one thing I think I pinged you about the other day. I was like, is there a name for the people that try to source ideas back to where they came from? Because, you know, I see things spring up and it's like, where, what YouTube video did it first come from? Or you know, who injected that into the conversation somewhere like that frame? Um, but like I can just go type into a, a Facebook box, right? Something I captured from somewhere else. So that's one tricky point I see. Um, but the, the move to open seems so obvious, mm -hmm. right, to me. And this is where what I don't understand yet is, or what has maybe hasn't evolved, is the economics to support that. 
Because I know one of the things, right? Here's a very clear example of this I sometimes see, just even as like a coach and a teacher, is most coaches and spiritual teachers I know, we all learned most of what we learned from someone else. Yep. <laughs> to some extent, right? We had a teacher. Um, but then we have to like create a market for ourselves yeah. to make ourselves stand out. So I slap a name on it and it becomes my system that then, right, um, it's in my financial interest to not have that system be open because I want you to come and pay me dividends to access it, right? And so that creates a certain type of incentive, which I imagine is part of what gets into the kind of scientific community, patents, like all these different worlds, right? Where there's like a, a conflicting I guess, motivator to openness, right? Because there's certain levels of prosperity that come from gated information, right? Oh, I have the copyright on that. If you want to use Mickey Mouse, you got to pay me. Even though, you know, Disney's notorious for this. They keep getting copyright law to be extended Mm -hmm. so they don't have to uh, give away their, their finest assets. But so that's one thing I see is like, how do we, what's the way where do those meet? Like how does open become financially attractive? Right. And this might just be in part of the issue of kind of the, the financial system we're part of and some of its incentives that I don't know yet, you know, um, and that, you know, just as, as artists, you know, as a Hollywood guy, I see this all the time. I still have to yell at people when they like watch content for free. I'm like, it doesn't get fucking made for free. Like I know people who worked on that show, right? Like this is is real, you know? Um, Let's talk about this intellectual property idea. Like, cause I think this one kind of intersects kind of topic today. It also touches a little bit on the libertarianism topic we had with Casey. Yeah. Um, And it also kind of talks about like this gets into the economics, like aspect of this as well. And that's kind of where you started. How do we create the yep. or maintain the the economic incentive? And this is, um, you know, this is a question of like, well, I kind of don't know for sure. Um, but totally. there, there are certain things to kind of pay attention to here. Like one is that, um, so it, this is an economic thing. There's an idea of like a rivalrous good, right? If I eat the sandwich, you cannot also eat the sandwich, right? Like it's gone. I ate, ate, I I ate the utility of the sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, let's take, uh, something like a music recording, right? Well, this can be kind of duplicated. So maybe there was a day, you know, before there was the phonograph where, Hey, to, to have the utility of the music, you had to be there with the performer when it happened. So there was a kind of natural scarcity to it. Maybe it wasn't perfectly rivalrous because everyone who was there, you know, for the concert could hear it. So we were, you know, but it was certain some, some upper limit there where like maybe there's like group level rivalry there. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you take, uh, there's a thing called like a non-rivalrous good which is um, something we're talking about in the area of like just information or data or something where essentially you can, you know, I can read Moby Dick. 
you can read Moby Dick. We can both consume the enjoyment that's inside of Moby Dick and without any loss to each other. My reading, it doesn't take your ability to read it away. Right. And anything that can be kind of transformed into uh, or, or exists purely or solely as an informational artifact, um, gets into this kind of non rivalrous category. So like, I mean, this is like theater, you had to be there, but now we have movies and you can copy it. So then we have to kind of add to them, uh, these, what some people think of as like artificial scarcity, right. To maintain like all the regimes around copyright and patent and trademark and any kind of intellectual property regime is some way of trying to essentially force a rivalrous style of economic dynamic upon something that sort of naturally doesn't have one, right? Like yeah. information wants to be free. You know, remember that saying, it's just going to, you're just going to go out there and yeah. Okay, cool. That's cool. Um, and so some people kind of embraced it, right? The open source movement in software embraced it. And that was extended by Lawrence Lessig and his open culture innovation. And they created the great commons yeah. and this idea of copy left where you're kind of like, you know, most of the rights are relinquished on purpose, but certain rights, like you got to attribute this or, you know, you, you know, you can't modify it or whatever. If you modify it, mm-hmm. you have to also attribute which I think is, is kind of cool, which is, you might say kind of in that gray area of like, okay, we're not going to try to turn a, a book into something like a sandwich, right? Where only one person, <laughs> right? Like that's weird, but we're going to try to create some, some partial amount of sharing. And the view there is like, Hey, the boats all rise together. Like if we share this thing, like Linux, um, is, it's not something most people think about, but um, cause most of us interact with like Apple devices or Android or, you know, Microsoft, but like the truth is most of what's happening on the entire internet, like all the processing inside of most where most of it is housed is running on Linux. So it's like by totally. far and away, like you're, everyone is interacting with an open source piece of software every day. You just don't think that you are right. Cause there's kind of this commons a a common wealth that's sort of been built up digitally right like it's it actually sort of parallels some of the things that are that way in the natural world like air right like we can you can sort of talk about things like tragedy of the commons like the pollution of the air and you know these types of things but there's there's generally speaking this idea that like we don't want to contain the access to something that should naturally be shared that we all benefit from. Mm-hmm. Want to just keep feeding the, the the natural mutual benefit of it. Now, if you take this one step further, and this is kind of trippy, it's, if you heard of anti-rivalrous or anti-rivalry economics, no. So it's it's kind of borrowing a little bit from uh, you know, Nassim Taleb said, you know, there's fragility and there's resilience, which is sort of like it bounces back. But then there's anti-fragility, where it's like if it gets stressed, it gets stronger, right? So rivalry is actually the more people are consuming the same thing, the value of it goes up. Does this make sense? Yeah, sure. So if you take something that starts off, if you can make something non-rivalrous, 
right? Like a Linux, right? But if you can then add to it like a network effect, you know, Metcalf yep. law, the more people use it, the more valuable it becomes. Like, totally. How did you sell the first phone? Well, it was really hard. But once more people had phones, it became easier and easier to sell phones. Facebook has a network effect where in a strange way, the more people that use Facebook, the more valuable Facebook becomes as a thing. Totally. Right. So if like that, that idea of like an anti-rivalrous common good that everyone mutually benefits from, I think we do need to create more economic paradigms around it. And I think um, if you take the open source movement and kind of extend it, you get blockchain, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if we were all sharing the code, but I still had to buy my own hardware and install it, that's one level of like, we're all mutually benefiting from a non-rivalrous thing. But the Bitcoin network actually becomes more valuable the more people install that code and link their hardware up to it. So it kind of starts tilting into kind of an anti-rivalrous style of dynamics. So if you can replicate that kind of thing um, where, where the value of a thing is becoming greater for every person within it who is using it, then you are starting to create like, so how much, how much of the economy can we shift in that way? Well, I mean, you probably can't make sandwiches anti-rivalrous. That would be weird. But you can probably take anything that has become primarily informational, like all these kind of knowledge work jobs, and you can, if you wrap them in the right economic structure, then you can probably make them anti-rivalrous, right? Like, so um, here's just one kind of example. So I, I like that we're we're now we've moved from the transparency of information kind of over to like an economic dynamic, which I think is part of the space, which is, you know, uh, take Uber or Lyft, right? These ride share programs. At first, everyone with the sharing, he was like, this is great, right? Like, and there is a way that it is great, right? There's kind of a flex to the supply side, which no amount of fleet management that a rental company could have achieved. So you're actually kind of like expunging lots of waste, right? But mm-hmm. by doing it, you're actually, the, the entity of Uber and Lyft are externalizing economic cost onto individual citizen 1099 contract workers, which you could yep. say is a little bit like some kind of digital form of serfdom, right? There's something kind of extract. Totally. Because the people who are writing the algorithm, you know, here's where the transparency comes back in. We don't know what their algorithm is, that's kind of a trade secret. That's kind of private to Uber and their dispatching algorithm. And maybe even the engineers at Uber don't fully understand either if it's a black box <laughs> yeah, yeah. and this kind of second layer. But what is that optimizing for? Well, it's optimizing. It is a for-profit corporation which whose entire utility function, whatever the behaviors of the programmers and the managers and the code, is maximizing the value of the shareholders, which is another stakeholder population publicly traded, you know, Wall Street investors, right? But that's not the population of the drivers, right? So there's a weird kind of incentive yeah, yeah. Th- that there's like a, dis- a disjointedness there. So I would say like, if you could make the people who were creating the value also be participating in the kind of um, 
harvesting of the rewards value, the rewards of it, then you create something that is something more like anti-rivalrous. Like imagine if the drivers and the programmers and the writers were all some kind of shareholders. Maybe there's different shareholder classes for each one. Totally. The thing. Then the more people that use it, the more valuable it becomes for all of them together. Yep. Right. Like, okay, so maybe we could kind of plug this thing back into itself. And this concept is not new. This is actually called a platform cooperative. So it's like the digital platform concept merged with this cooperative idea, which kind of came from the co-op movement in the mid 19th century. Um, You know, the Rochdale principles of cooperativism, those have been around for a while, but like that movement has kind of been reinvigorated. Um, There's a guy in Boulder at CU named Nathan Schneider. I don't know if you know him. He wrote a book called everything for everyone. And he has written about this exact thing. And then he also co-authored or an anthology called ours to hack and own which is specifically a collection of essays directly out of the platform cooperative movement so if we're if we're talking about the kind of construct economically that hopefully would keep the social coherence going i think something like this needs to happen especially we need to have a version of this that is a facebook and an amazon and a google that is not has this kind of like fork of incentives happen. And the answer is not for, I don't think for Facebook and Google and Amazon to get in bed with the federal government. Cause I think that actually makes it worse, not better. I, I love that you went this direction. Cause I, yeah, I've, I mean, I have so many thoughts around that. And it's funny, you know, I was even, I even railed on a friend's post today. Uh, cause he had posted something to our friend Keith had posted something to medium and it got banned. And I was like, actually, man, this is great. Cause now you have to post it on your site. Um, cause mediums, one of those areas where I see the, the serfdom, right? So every time your thing goes viral, most of the benefit to that flows back to medium, all the SEO flows back to medium, to medium, to medium. Um, you know, they have a little revenue sharing, but it's, it's not a lot, but again, it, it, you know, in the same way, the Uber Lyft, yeah, this, this shift to, oh yeah. What if the very people enacting the network and participating in it? reap the rewards. And we, we feel like close, like there is going to be something, you know, I know as an artist, I was super excited because they did pass the um, jobs act maybe two or three years ago, mm-hmm. which they still haven't enacted, but um, will allow the shift from something like Kickstarter where it's donation based to be kind of mini shareholders. We're like, Oh, how great. Like, so if I want to make a TV show um, and you donate, What's awesome about that is the better the show does, the more money you get, right? Like, so your your passionate fandom, creating memes, spreading it on Twitter, you actually get to soak some of that in. Like, that feels, uh, yeah, that that that's super exciting to me in terms of that. Um, and this like differentiating, I guess, like uh, I don't know how to put it, the 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 pipes from the content is another thing I heard you say of, because, right, I, I run a coaching business and I advertise on Facebook and it is a total black box. I am literally spending money every month and I have no idea how it's being used, no idea how it's being applied. Mm. And I just have to trust that it's being used well. 
based on an algorithm that they won't give me any information about. And, you know, I have antibodies to this. I've posted many very unscientific experiments before of, you know, they have two types of ads you can run continuous or, you know, run an ad till next Tuesday Uh and then it expires. And every time I've run this test, um, and some of the major marketing groups I'm in are part of this, they teach you never set an ad to run continuously. Huh? Why? So what you do instead is you keep refreshing an expiration date because what always happens is when you have an expiration date about two or three days before your results and conversions will start to spike. You'll, your, your ad performance will go up. Uh huh. And then right at the end of it, it's like, oh, my ad's actually doing really well. I should extend it again. I, I, I should run this again. Very smart. Um, which kind of creates this little addiction versus to me, what that proves is, oh, actually when I'm running it continuously, they're not fully optimizing delivering my ads to the right people. Cause here's some way I can, I can Game. work that. Yeah. And they turn up the juice, so to speak. But I think w- what you said about like Amazon and Facebook and starting to distinguish this is, yeah, at some point it's like infrastructure, right? And there's this argument about is the, is, is the internet a utility, you know, and at what point should, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of the, the big argument we've been having over the internet and, uh, regulation, free speech. Yeah. And whether or not it's, uh, Obama passed it and then the dude unpassed it <laughs> totally blanking right now, but, uh, um, whether or not all data on the internet should be considered equal. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Um, or whether or not it can be prioritized. Right. And we do see the result of this now I'm an AT&T cell phone person. So next year HBO shows will be free and not counts to count against my data limit, but things produced by a rival film studio who's owned by another corporation now will. So which one am I probably going to watch more? Right. The one that doesn't cost me anything yeah. versus nope, you can't prioritize certain types of information. The, the, the means of the content needs to be somewhat distinguished from the delivery mechanism, right? In the film industry, super famous, right? We had the whole antitrust thing in the 20s and 30s that split up the studios that said, you can't be the ones making it and also own the theaters because it becomes a monopoly, right? Because then you don't want to show anyone shit. And instead of getting that passed, we just, technology has recreated it in a different way now. So it's <laughs> totally happening again, right? Like, yeah. oh, Disney owns the pipes. Um, is more and more happening. But this idea that, oh, how cool would it be if, okay, Facebook gets to be Facebook, they get to take certain cut of the ads, but what if I got to choose what algorithm was running on Facebook? So my newsfeed, I paid for the, 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 the Porcelli package and it involved an algorithm you created that displayed my information in a different way. Yep. That maybe I found more valuable and that I could actually go under and look at the source code from. And then someone else would be like, oh, wait, no, he's got it wrong. I'm going to do mine like this. And then, you know, it's optimizing for something. I think it is something we absolutely need to get to in that, you know, but again, it's not in Facebook's economic interest yet to open that up. But maybe this anti-rivalrous thing you're talking about would be, man, if that happened, maybe people would trust Facebook again. Maybe people, people would think of Facebook as like a public good. And there'd be this huge swelling of like, uh, appreciation for it and brand affinity that might actually make them even more money <laughs> in the long run. Right. Um, yeah. but that, that this just 
totally, I don't know the way to get there, but it, yeah, I love that you're speaking towards it and that um, the last thing I'll share that maybe ties back into how we kind of started is, you know, I'd be curious, you know, where this lands for you. But part of what I, I hear speaking underneath that is, you know, as we're creating this next infrastructure for what is going to be, um, there needs to be kind of a dialogue in the open about what do we value? Yeah. Right. So these AIs are optimizing towards something. And right now they're optimizing towards a specific type of capitalism that we've kind of all bought into. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we valued. And that's so what it's moving towards. And, you know, Tristan Harris and who I talk about a lot is talking about, well, what if we shifted our values and what if our technology actually reinforced that? And to me, in some sense, um, you know, decisions and politics and media, like one of the things I feel like is missing right now is like, in terms of recreating shared unity in this fractured world is what do we value, right? Like almost, almost you know, what if that was part of our elections? Every couple of years, we had to actually refresh. What do we value as human beings? Like, are we going to renew this? Can people live this shitty? Can people be this rich? And then all the systems kind of flow out of that. But I just, I don't really seeing other than (laughs) you and some other thought leaders, like people having that conversation, which even feels to me a step before the new infrastructure emerges around it, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, what, what do we value folks, you know, and, and that is a little bit more predictive, but, um, and maybe there's a delineation here between like predicting control kind of centrism from the systems on the outside versus, well, we set an internal value and then the system agilely develops around that out in the world somehow, maybe, I don't know. Um, I just gave you a lot of stuff there, but <laughs> This thing around values seems so important to me to start to create something again, like, okay, I'm arguing with someone on um, Facebook about the pandemic or about politics. Uh, like, hey, man, what what do we value? Like, what's important to you as a human? And to start creating some shared reality around that to even create some space so we can figure out how the fuck we're going to deal with this Pandora's box we're in. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm going to talk, I'll talk about, I'll respond with two pieces. Like one is just, um, before I get to the value thing, cause I maybe we'll end on that note. That's big and touches into a whole philosophical territory, which we're not going to be able to get it. Yeah. But <clears throat> you know, some of these early decisions, like I remember the conversation around, you know, the year 2000, I was working at a web, you know, dot com that was a dot com era (laughs) (laughs) you know a lot of the conversation there was like or how how is this going to work are we going to um ask for micropayment how's content going to work micropayments for content or are we going to subsidize content with advertising and you know there's always been you know even in the newspaper days a hybrid of subscriptions and advertising to pay for the thing so it's not like the information ecology has been you know brand new corrupted by whatever you know in the internet it's just been somewhat amplified i mean people still subscribe to new york times you know and uh it is also ad subsidized but we kind of created this kind of deal where we're like 
eh, we want everything for free, right? Otherwise, we're going to steal them. Like, we're going to Napster or whatever. And um, I think Jerron Lanier has, has like, called this, like, one of the big mistakes was the kind of expectation for information to be free. So the, the whole industry kind of tilted more towards um, advertising subsidy rather than micro payments. And if you do that, then, you know, you, you get the entire dynamic that we're doing with Facebook, right? It's like the real customer, the paying customer are the advertisers and the, ben- the primary beneficiary are the shareholders and the kind of like the transaction between advertisers and shareholders is basically just mediated through our brains, right? Like the, the users minds in exploiting the social network. It's, it's really screwed up in a way. Um, but you could potentially flip this around, you know, if we, if we, if we had an easy way to put micropayments back in and some experiments with this, like the brave browser or, or yep. attention coin is a way of kind of cryptizing our attention um, and then I think a broader social movement, which is really, I think, just getting started, you know, if, if we're not going to end up in a dystopia, I'm, we're going to need to have this as a social movement, data sovereignty movement, which is a way of like, you know, we own the data that we generate. So there's, there's kind of privacy concerns, which is a separate conversation. I do think there is an advantage to having some places where we can be anonymous online yep. kind of cool you know or if ephemerality like this this data does not get written into the, that blockchain in the sky you know what i'm saying which is fine mm-hmm. we need to have spaces for that um but i also think it's important to have where, wherever the space is kind of like this system of record right like you and i did this and then we sold that or we bought like we're gonna have to have valid id and our valid id should be linked up to our own data stores and we should essentially have rights over our own data stores and that the systems that support right now, it's sort of weird. Like you can click a button and download all your data off Facebook, but your data goes from like a kind of like living on like a server, like in a way that can like interact with live algorithms to just being like a dead, you know, data file sitting on your hard drive that doesn't really do anything until it gets loaded back up into another system. But, but ideally, um, the systems of the future will be ones where we can essentially govern the rights over the data streams that we're emitting through our, mm-hmm. through our devices, our wearables and our, you know, actions on websites and such like that. Like, so that we can monetize it. So we're like, we're not only we like micro paying for the content reading New York times, we're also getting paid by anybody who wants to monetize our attention somehow if we want to voluntarily enter into that. So I think that's a solution that kind of restores sovereignty to the individual. And, um, you know, if if we're kind of talking about like, you know, what are people going to do when AIs and robots take over all the jobs, right? Like we're going to have to create another basis of the economy. And some of it's, I think needs to be anti-rivalrous in some of the dynamics we talked about. And some of that's going to really kind of center on we're, kind of selling access to our behaviors like we're willingly allowing as this, this is going to make i don't know if it's black mirror or like gray mirror like it's somewhere <laughs> okay if i'm sovereign over my data and then i willingly monetize my my data to some extent 
because like what else am i doing right they don't need me to like dig ditches anymore because we have robots for that like yeah. what are we buying and selling right and it's you sort of see that already and people are like I, this is my youtube channel this is my instagram right it's like people are monetizing those things already like look at my life or here's what i do right like and i kind of like that you know but the whatever the intermediary is the platform the market space that kind of like helps the buyers and sellers find each other, right? The producers and the consumers find each other. You know, that is a big job that Amazon and Google and Facebook do. Yeah. Right. Like the, it is intermediated by a financial interest that is not shared with, with the people in that exchange. So that's the, that's the heart of the problem. If you're going to unplug monetizing people's attention through advertising, like you need to simultaneously restore data sovereignty to the end user, but then also make the platforms co-owned by all the producers and consumers on the platform. And if you can put all those three things into click into place at the same time, then we'll have a different type of economic system in the future. And that doesn't answer your values question. It sort of embeds some principles in there, like that maybe values like sovereignty, definitely openness, but also privacy like choice over that. Um, but I think to kind of just touch more <laughs> big picture, I think there's a lot of talk in the um, AI alignment space. People kind of talk about what happens if we get a super intelligence explosion and, you know, it turns all our atoms into paper clips. I mean, that's kind of the joke, but uh, this kind of thing actually makes ethic philosophy, ethical philosophy, relevant again what, what do we mean like we kind of this postmodern world that we're in has sort of like denatured the whatever that space that like morality or religion or god or ethical conversation used to occupy has been somewhat denatured at this point like in that in the postmodern societies like well, what is it well it's short-term hedonistic self-interest narcissism nihilism like like the the underlying nihilism has actually become so widespread that like we've lost an ability to even gain traction in terms of having shared values. But now if we talk about like, I mean, you don't even have to make up some kind of like movie villain AI like <laughs> you might even say we already had that. The 2016 election really was a whole bunch of algorithms that nobody knew, not even the Facebook engineers knew were what was going being on exploited in this particular way that was causing this weird thing to happen in like millions of people's brains at the same time. And then we're now we sit back and kind of look at it like maybe we just had our first AI breakdown, right? Like maybe that was it, right? But whether you think that is it or uh you think it's like coming, we have to talk about that. We have to talk about what is the value we're we're talking about here i mean there's at some level you know the life like promoting life over time i think is good right as far as we know we're the only intelligent life in the universe so life lasting you know the habitable period of the earth is millions of years long and then the universe is going to continue long after our sun dies so maybe becoming interstellar species like i mean these are kind of interesting questions but like what do we want to become interstellar? I don't know. Like we, we definitely don't want to be some weird 
black <laughs> automatons or matrix just jacked into a thing. We're just sitting there in some kind of like vat of totally goo. Like, I mean, so I don't have an easy answer for that, but what, whatever that is, it's like some coherent thing that's extrapolated out into the future, right? Like, um, Elias Yukowski had a concept called coherent extrapolated volition, which is maybe like a design principle for AI. But like this concept is like, well, whatever it is, we're going to have, we already have this feedback loop with the global economic system. What are we going to call this? Like the Westphalian, you know, democratic Republic nation state combined with the free market debt-based banking system is the kind of a global AI that we have, whatever you want to call that thing, right? <laughs> it sort of has a life of its own, right? And yeah. we're all kind of plugged into it to some degree. Okay. Cool. But what the next thing should be, uh, hopefully, an upgrade to that that is more coherent and that is more humane. And I think these conversations like Tristan Harris is having or Douglas Rushkoff and his team human, if you've been following him, he's kind of having the same conversation. And I think a lot of the people who are kind of criticizing this breakdown of the information ecology and this kind of mind virus issue like are kind of addressing the same kind of issue right now, whatever it is, is breaking like the it's a definition yes. of the way that capitalism is done currently, like shareholder optimization plus advertising attention economy plus freaking algorithms. If you don't understand, like they're in a deadly feedback loop with each other, like that. It's like, if it just keeps going, I think it's going to be very, very bad. Like we have, we have to, move in the direction that implements some of those things that I'm talking about. Otherwise we're dead or we live in a dystopia. I think that's so, I think that kind of nails it for me in terms of particularly this epidemic and part of what's happening and some of the feelings I've been having is there's this idea that when you know, we create a system and it runs and every now and then we have to kind of check in <laughs> with what are the rules of the system what are the structures mm -hmm. and how is it playing out? Right. And I think maybe what I'm kind of speaking to is this idea that it's, it, you know, yet we need to have these breaks for we've created this whole system. It's evolved. Now, what values do we hold? And is this reflecting it? Yes. Moving us closer to that or not. Okay. It's not right now, or it is right now, or if it's, and if it's not, okay, we need to change a few rules in the system to maybe try to move towards that. Yep. And then we're going to do that. And then shit's going to go off in unexpected ways and things are going to break in other ways. And But there's going to be this continual need um, to kind of refresh this, um, refresh and check in with our values on, in this sense. And that I think, you know, this is a moment we need to do that. And part of the, the friction right now is the systems melting down in one of the leadership gaps I do see, you know, is who's speaking towards what the fuck do we want to be making? Mm -hmm. Right. The, the narrative is like, let's go back. Let's reopen the economy. Let's get back to where we were going, which is great if you were already, you know, thriving in that system. Um, not so great if you weren't mm -hmm. and, and, and just, so in some sense, it would even be creating systems. And I think this is where open source and this movement you're talking about, this anti-rivalrous um, anti to an extent would be part of the system is programming in these moments of refresh and like recheck 
right? Where it's actually embedded in it from the beginning, um, I, I think is a, a really interesting idea. I, I don't know exactly how that works, but this is what we need to fucking create, man. <laughs> I think it pauses being created, hone in on our values and then allow those values to influence the next rules and data sets for those systems that we then run for a while and then, you know, create new things and unexpected things. But then there always has to kind of be this pause to like, okay, and is this bringing us closer to this thing? And then, you know, how do we decide those values, you know, as a culture and globally? Yep. It's tough, you know, that's a whole different debate. Um, but, you know, and, and I feel like, uh, <laughs> I actually feel like our man, uh, Jefferson, you know, it's kind of what he was spoken to with his famous, the tree of Liberty quote, right. You know, just be refreshed sometimes. Like you're going to create the system and then shit's going to accrue on the system and unattended power will get consolidated and whatnot. And at times you got to like pause refresh what are our values is there a better system we can create or what rules can we change to maybe bring us a little closer to that yeah it's like the jubilee concept from ancient judaism right just like re mm. all the debts are forgiven all the slaves are freed and everyone goes back home and we start over like maybe there's some wisdom to that type of concept we reset like expire the concept yeah. something poof, it's gone. We have to recreate it. Right. I mean, I mean, we see this in, I don't know, you know, some people in the uh, monogamy movement, I don't remember what it's called, but right. It's like a life contract or something where it's actually, we have to renew our vows every two or three years instead of this is just a set thing in stone. Every two or three years, we actually have to make a decision to keep doing this. And there's like a, a freshness to that, but what an interesting way to think about, you know, and to me, you know, as, as a, um, for those that listen to our libertarian episode, someone who does kind of believe in the power of government, mm -hmm. I think one of the things it could do as an action is to help, um, pull out, define those values that then everyone who wants to go and create the systems get influenced by mm -hmm. and that, okay. And then, and we all get to participate in that system that sets the values, even if I don't get to participate in the shareholder board of Amazon, right? There is some influence there to, to an extent. And you know, that would be my hope. Obviously, the system as it is has been corrupted right now, so it doesn't quite work that way. But this is why I think it's important to start having these questions. Um, yep, totally. So we can start creating know, some shared reality and some shared values. Cause that's, you know, that it does have to be part of my mindfulness practices when I get reactive or see someone with a different thought online. It's like, okay, they probably want something. They probably care about something. And it's probably actually not that different than me, you know? And, uh, there was, there was one of the pieces you sent me that was like, um, of one of the most dangerous things that causes the spread of misinformation is people's desire to help. <laughs> yeah right? That that's actually, they think they're sharing good information. So they want all their friends to get it. And like, you should know this, right? Drink bleach and it'll cure you from COVID. Like, right. You know, like that, that's, there's actually an altruistic thing in there, <laughs> which is good, good to remember, but then, okay, we need some gates and checks around that, that, uh, are values based and they influence the systems, but uh, there's something fun there, man. We might have to keep exploring. Cool. Well, this was great. Uh, yeah, as always, it always feels like there's more that we could talk about, but it seems like a good 
encapsulation. At least I got to give, I think, the most core central design principles, I think, that we would need to create a system, a new one. Yeah. Some examples of places where it's already happening. But, you know, the devil is in the details of all that. And there's some stuff we didn't get into, which maybe we could pick up at some other time, too. But this was fun. Absolutely, brother. Thank you so much yet again. Yes. Cool. Looking forward to hearing it. See you, buddy. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out.